I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America, chartered by Congress, to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. And in this episode, we will discuss the First Amendment, Twitter, and whether the Constitution places any limits on President Trump's ability to block citizens from following him on his Twitter feed. Last month, the Knight First Amendment Institute at Columbia University filed suit on behalf of several Twitter users who were blocked from President Trump's Twitter feed. Each of them were blocked after they made comments critical of the president. The Knight Institute claims that the ban is a violation of the First Amendment, in particular the right to free speech and free assembly. In their view, a public official's social media page should be treated as what the Supreme Court has called a designated public forum. The Justice Department, defending President Trump, says that courts don't have the authority to tell the president how he can manage his private Twitter handle. And they also claim that the Knight Institute's request would send the First Amendment into deep, uncharted waters. Joining us to discuss these absolutely fascinating questions are two of America's leading experts on the First Amendment and technology. Eugene Volokh is the Gary T. Schwartz Distinguished Professor of Law at UCLA Law School. He is the founder and co-author of The Volokh Conspiracy, which regularly hosts influential essays. He co-authored the Interactive Constitution's essay set on the First Amendment's free speech and press clauses. Listeners, it is your homework to read those clauses after the podcast, not during it. And Alex Abdo is senior staff attorney at the Knight Foundation First Amendment Institute. He is working on the Knight Institute's legal case against President Trump and the decision to block certain Twitter users from his feed and is a returning champion on We the People. Eugene, Alex, I know it's a very busy time, so thank you both so much for joining. Uh, thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Alex, I'll start with you because you uh, and the Knight Institute have filed the suit. Can you tell us what the facts of the case are, why these Twitter users have been blocked from from the president's Twitter account, what the consequences of being blocked are, and why the Knight Foundation believes that that violates the First Amendment. Sure. I, I should say first, it's just it's an honor to be here, and I look forward to the conversation with you and Professor Volokh. So the basic premise of the lawsuit is that as politicians move online, the First Amendment should follow. Uh, this is a, a premise that the Supreme Court alluded to recently in its uh, decision regarding uh, Twitter in a case called Packingham. It, it noted how much of political discourse today takes place online uh, and how politicians increasingly use social media uh, services like Twitter and Facebook to uh, champion their policies, uh, engage their constituencies, and, and, uh, and disseminate their policy. So that's the basic premise of the lawsuit. And the facts are fairly straightforward. Uh, I'm sure your listeners are aware that President Trump operates one of the most uh, followed uh, accounts on Twitter. He has, uh, I think, about 35 million followers on Twitter. And he regularly uses that account to uh, to announce policy, to describe policy, to defend policy, uh, to engage with other world leaders, uh, and to engage uh, even occasionally directly with his constituents uh, about his presidency. Uh, he has also uh, taken to blocking critics uh, on his uh, Twitter account. Uh, and the result of a blocking uh, is really twofold. Uh, it first prevents uh, Twitter users from easily reading the president's tweets. Uh, but perhaps more importantly, it prevents Twitter users from engaging with the president's tweets in the very lively comment threads that surround each of his tweets. Uh, and he has blocked a number of, of critics from those threads and from seeing his tweets. Uh, and we represent seven of them, uh, each of whom was blocked after posting a critical comment in the president's comment threads, uh, arguing that uh, the blocking uh, is viewpoint discriminatory and for that reason uh, violates the First Amendment. Thank you very much for that great uh, introduction. Eugene, uh, you can amplify on the facts in any way that you please and tell us uh, why you think that the blocking that Alex describes may not violate the First Amendment. All right. I think this is a close case. Uh, I think uh, the Knight Institute has a great, uh, great argument. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, I think it is made hard by the fact that uh, 
political figures have two hats they wear. There is the official, and then there's the politician. Now, of course, the same person is wearing both hats. But at least some of the time, I think we recognize that they have quite different uh, different roles while playing those uh, while wearing those two hats. Here's one example uh, from a, a uh, another branch of the First Amendment, the Establishment Clause. There's this hot debate, of course, as to whether uh, the um, Establishment Clause bars government speech endorsing religion. Uh, and in the, one of the Ten Commandments cases, uh, Justice Stevens, uh, in dissent, was arguing that, yes, it does ban the government from endorsing religion. But the question was, well, um, what, what about uh, all of these historical examples uh, of, um, uh, of, the, uh, of politicians using religious symbolism in their speeches? Uh, everything from closing uh, uh, their speeches with God bless America, but also going into more, uh, more religious references. And he says, well, that's different. Our leaders, when delivering public addresses, often express their blessings uh, in the service of God. Uh, but we recognize the words are not a transmission from the government because they're uh, based on the inherently personal views of the speaker as an individual member of the polity. So Justice Stevens's view is that the president, for example, acting as president shouldn't be able to endorse religion, for example, shouldn't uh, uh, file uh, maybe executive orders that endorse religion. But acting as a politician, acting as a, as a person, can indeed uh, include religious references in his speeches. And Justice Ginsburg agreed with that. Um, so that illustrates, I think, uh, at least for those who, who agree with Justice Stevens's position there, that people can wear two hats this way. Another example is, what happens when a politician runs for re-election? I think most people would conclude that uh, uh, his um, uh, rallies, uh, uh, um, re-election rallies as a candidate are not government speech, even though there's somebody who's a government official, this guy running for re-election, uh, who is the guest of honor and whose campaign committee organizes that. Rather, it's the speech of uh, of uh, him wearing his politician hat. And for example, while I think it's usually thought to be a bad idea for politicians to exclude audience members based on their politics or based on the signs they're carrying and such, uh, that he'd have in probably himself the First Amendment right to say, look, we're going to organize this event so that uh, um, uh, only people on our side of the aisle are invited. So the question is, if I'm right that, that there are these two hats, is which hat President Trump is wearing? Um, and uh, I, there are various factors that point in one direction, point in another. In favor of the Knight Institute, this is the president is speaking as the president. Uh, he identifies himself as the president. He is speaking about important issues uh, um, in the news. He's making announcements of various policy events. Um, though note that that's something that he might do at a re-election rally as well, if he runs for re-election. Another factor is it sounds like, from what I've heard recently, is that his, um, uh, his White House staff actually uh, help out with this account. That would be quite different from a re-election rally, where generally speaking, it would have to be done entirely by non-government employees. Although it may actually be similar to the religious speech example, because presumably speeches that contain religious components can be written by the president's speech writers. Uh, so, so that cuts, I think, in favor of the Knight Institute. Uh, on the other hand, this is an account that is uh, pre-exists the presidency. Presumably, it will survive the presidency and uh, will uh, won't be just bequeathed to the to President Trump's successor the way the POTUS account is. Um, and uh, people, I think, understand it as as conveying kind of Trump's own personal uh, tone and personal uh, uh, beliefs and thus may be seen more as a personal message. It's a hard question and one on which there's virtually no precedent outside of a little bit of federal district court uh, uh, decision making in a case in Loudoun County, Virginia, which I think at least the most recent decision cuts in favor of the Knight Institute there. But it's not like there's a lot of precedent on the subject. Thank you very much for that uh, cogent uh, intervention. Uh, Alex, uh, Eugene just mentioned the Davison versus Plowman and Davison versus Loudoun County cases. 
Um, in those cases, uh, a judge concluded that when a Facebook page is run by a government agency, it's generally considered a limited public forum. When it's run by an individual office holder, uh, it might not be viewed as a government project and not be constrained by the First Amendment. But there are some government-run accounts uh, that are limited public forums uh, when they are operated by the government and not run by a government official. Can you tell us about the relevance of the Davison case and why you think it favors uh, your uh, clients in this case? Sure. You know, the the toughest question that the Davison case raised, uh, and there were a number of claims involved, but the toughest question was uh, whether an individual councilwoman's uh, Facebook page, which she had established the day before assuming office, uh, whether that page run exclusively by her and one that, uh, you know, as Eugene, as Professor Volokh described of, of President Trump's account, uh, would stay with her following her her counselship, um, whether that page was a public forum uh, for First Amendment purposes. And the court ultimately held that it was. Uh, and in coming to that conclusion, it looked at a number of factors, um, some of the same ones that Professor Volokh pointed to relating to the President Trump's uh, account, you know, whether the councilwoman used it to engage with her constituency, whether she invited uh, feedback and commentary from her constituency, whether her uh, staff uh, contributed to the operation of the account, uh, and her chief of staff did. Uh, and I think all of the same factors that in that case pointed toward the account being uh, official in nature uh, help us. You know, but I, but I, I agree with Pres- Professor Volek that there are hard questions about uh, how to conceive of these accounts given that politicians do often wear two hats. Now, some politicians solve that problem themselves by segregating their accounts. There are a number of politicians who have, uh, for example, a a website dedicated to their campaigns and a separate website dedicated to their current uh, positions. Uh, So many senators have this, where they have a page um, that describes their current policy and is a place for their constituencies to submit feedback and have a separate page uh, entirely different where you can you know, donate money to the next campaign or show your support in, in some respect. And some politicians have taken that same model and used it on Twitter and Facebook where they have one account for their campaigns and one account for their, for their positions. Um, but not all politicians uh, do that. And, uh, and that makes it a slightly harder question. And so you know, uh, the, the first example that Professor Volek pointed to was Uh, Well, sometimes politicians engage in religious speech that we all understand to be personal, uh, even when they're speaking in a nominally official capacity. Um, And to kind of push that hypothetical a little further, take a town hall meeting. Uh, You know, one of the, uh, uh, um, you know, classic designated or limited public forums where the government has opened up a space for uh, citizens to come and comment on on, uh, usually local policy um, often those town hall meetings will include some of these same benedictions or, you know, religious speech, but that doesn't, gen- that's not generally thought of as converting the nature of the entire town hall into something other than a place for, uh, expressive activity for the citizenry to respond. Um, so I, you know, th- that's part of the response I think is that, um, you know, at the end of the day, it's, it's a, it's a balance. Is this more something used for personal speech or something for official uh, and what are the consequences of, of that balance? Um, and if in the end, uh, it, you know, politicians use a single account for both purposes and are limited by nature of the technology to not being able to kind of segregate those uses. You know, Twitter doesn't let you say this tweet is an official one and this one is a personal one. If they did, it might make our case, uh, it might allow us to avoid some of the hard questions Professor Volokh points out, but that's not how Twitter runs their, their service. Um, uh, but when you do have, you know, politicians who use them in both ways, uh, it might, at the end of the day, come down to um, a balance. Does the f- public's First Amendment right to be present uh, where government officials solicit constituency feedback in an official capacity overcome that same politician's right to decide with whom they associate when speaking in a personal capacity? Um, and, you know, th- that, that's a hard question. I don't think President Trump's circumstance raises that uh, very hard question because his 
uh, he uses his account in, I think, an overwhelmingly official way. Uh, you, can, you have to search pretty, uh, uh, pretty intensely on his account to find uh, things that you could describe fairly as solely personal. Uh, of course, uh, 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 you know, he has some of those things, but you, you, have, to, you have to search pretty hard. Thanks much for that. So to sum up the debate, as I understand it so far, we've, we're debating whether or not President Trump is speaking in his official or private capacity, and also whether as a result, his Twitter feed has become a public forum or a limited public forum. And just to sum up the case law, uh, listeners, the leading case is uh, called uh, Perry Education Association, and it, just, it creates a bunch of categories, traditional public forums like streets or parks that long have been devoted to speech, uh, designated public forums, uh, public property, which the state is open for use by the public for expressive activity, uh, and the government has to intend it for that purposes, and then limited pu public forums, and this is the messy category we're talking about here, designated for speech by certain groups or discussion by certain subjects. Eugene, it, um, is the public forum analysis the right one here, or is uh, Noah Feldman right when he uh, comments that uh, Twitter is the relevant actor and they're a private company, they're not bound by the First Amendment, their hate speech rules should uh, govern, but uh, it can't be turned into a public forum uh, under any circumstances. So note, we have two questions going on here. One is, is this the president's speech as president or this president's speech as Donald Trump, the real Donald Trump? Uh, and uh, that's what we've been discussing so far. I think that the case is, uh, is closer than, uh, uh, than the, the, the Knight Institute's position suggests, uh, in part because actually I don't think that the, uh, um, that the uh, 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 town hall benediction example is that good. Remember, Justice Stevens is the one I was quoting. He thought that uh, uh, town hall benedictions put on by the government as government would be unconstitutional. This kind of legislative prayer or prayer by a government agency, he thought, is, is impermissible. But even he was willing to acknowledge that government officials speaking, giving their own speeches, might be allowed, may be allowed to express themselves this way. Uh, and more broadly, there are limits on legislative prayer, but I think limits, the, the limits would be uh, establishment clause limits, but limits would be much, uh, uh, much looser or even absent when it comes to a politician's own speech. Also, it's true that real Donald Trump has very little kind of just Donald Trump's view about sports or about golf or whatever else. Uh, uh, but as I mentioned, for example, a re-election uh, uh, campaign speech might very well be all about uh, a policy and all about this, the uh, candidate's policy uh, accomplishments and policy proposals and still be viewed, I think, as the candidate's speech, the, the office holder, re-election candidate's speech and not the government speech. But then we get to the second question, what if it is government speech? Is it subject to the requirements of viewpoint neutrality that are generally imposed as to restrictions on government speech and, or government constraints in limited public fora? And there, I do agree with the Knight Institute and not with Noah Feldman, uh, that if indeed this is, uh, this is uh, uh, Donald Trump as president running this account, or if to get, take another example, which we've seen in other situations, if it's like say the Loudoun County uh, um, prosecutor's office, not a particular person, but the prosecutor's office that's running the account, then it is a limited public forum. And the fact that it's run on a private site doesn't matter. The private site may be able to impose its own rules without constraint of the First Amendment, but when the government that's using the private site imposes uh, uh, viewpoint-based restrictions, that's unconstitutional. An analogy might be, imagine that the city council decides to hold its meetings uh, in a private hall, the, the, uh, the city, uh, city hall is uh, down for repairs. So they rent space in a, in a private building. Uh, uh, the fact that it's on private property doesn't stop it from being at this point run by the city for purposes of the meeting. And then the city's actions are subject to the First Amendment. So if the, President Trump is viewed as kind of like the city, as the government and not just as a, uh, as a particular politician, then in that case, the First Amendment uh, uh, limited public forum constraints would apply to him. Uh, on, uh, on that point, uh, Alex, are there no limits on Twitter's ability to discriminate on the basis of speech? Imagine in the wake of 
the Charlottesville riots, that it decided to block all hate speech by the alt-right but not by the alt-left. Would that raise any constitutional issues or legal issues or not? Well, I think as a, as a current doctrinal matter, there's little question that Twitter would be, uh, that the First Amendment wouldn't prevent Twitter from doing so. Um, you know, there is some very broad language uh, in the recent Supreme Court Packingham decision in which Justice Kennedy uh suggests that Twitter is itself a public forum. I'm not convinced he meant that in the way uh, uh, in the way that some people have read it to suggest that Twitter is a public forum within the meaning of the First Amendment public forum doctrine. Uh, and so I don't think that decision uh, you know was meant to apply the First Amendment uh, to Twitter as an actor. Um, I, I think a, you know an interesting question, uh, I'm not sure we're there yet, but an interesting question uh, may arise in the future. Uh, if some social media companies uh, end up hosting a substantial portion of public discourse uh, and have, you know, what is in essence a, uh, a monopoly on the mediums of communication that the public by and large uses, uh, could they be considered in some way uh, a public utility that would be subject to greater congressional regulation, regulation that might not be consistent with the First Amendment otherwise, uh, but that could by virtue of the status that the company has achieved. I don't, my own instinct is that we're not there yet. Uh, and that even if we get further along, that, that is a very, very hard question. I would love to hear Professor Volok's thoughts on, uh, on that question. Uh, so would I. So I'll ask him for it. And Eugene, at the same time, tell us about this Packingham decision that Alex mentioned. What is its relevance? What do you think of Justice Kennedy's comments? And could you imagine in the future Twitter and Facebook being subject to the First Amendment? Sure. Uh, two quite different uh, issues, although they are related. Um, so first, the first word of the First Amendment, of course, is Congress. First Amendment uh, was created to constrain only the Congress and perhaps in some measure the rest of the federal government, too. Uh, the 14th Amendment applies that to states or has been read as applying that to states, which includes local governments. But nothing in the Constitution applies these constraints on private entities, private in the sense of non-governmental entities. Now, you could imagine statutes that require particular entities to uh, not discriminate based on uh, uh, people's speech. Uh, California, for example, has a statute that bars uh, uh, private colleges from expelling students or disciplining students for their other for their speech that would be protected against the First Amendment. Uh, now, uh, likewise, about half the states have statutes that limit employers' ability to fire employees based on the employee's political activity. Uh, but uh, uh, there is no such statute at this point with regard to online service providers. What's more, and I should say, I have argued this on behalf of Google as a lawyer and not just as an impartial academic. So what I'm about to say was based on my uh, on the, this white paper that I wrote for Google. But uh, 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 online entities have their own free speech rights. Uh, most clearly, for example, when Google decides what to show up in search results. Uh, or face, when Facebook decides what to propagate to people on their news feeds. Uh, so it may be that the government can't consistently with the First Amendment uh, uh, restrict these companies' ability to choose what it is they distribute to their users and what they don't. Uh, and that may be true even if they are near monopolies. The leading case in this is a case called Miami Herald versus Tornillo from the early 1970s, in which uh, uh, the state of Florida had a statute that required uh, uh, newspapers to publish replies from political candidates whenever the political candidates are being criticized in the newspaper. And the Supreme Court unanimously struck that down. It said that restricts the newspaper's ability to choose what to publish and what not to publish in its own pages. Uh, and uh, that's so even though back then, uh, many newspapers were the, o the only newspaper in town, or maybe one of a couple of newspapers in town. However, when it gets to things which aren't really uh, the, the uh, website operator's speech, so for example, just hosting services, uh, if, the, if uh, the government wanted to say that hosting companies had to provide uh, uh, equal access to all applicants regardless of their ideology, I think that would be a bad idea. Uh, but I think that the uh, uh, that this would not violate the First Amendment. 
Uh, Alex, your thoughts on the future of the First Amendment status of uh, the platforms. Tell us about other cases uh, involving Facebook in particular, where government employees have blocked their critics. Uh, for example, three cities in Indiana were sued by the ACLU uh, and agreed to change their policies by no longer blocking users. Uh, and there's a, a California a case involving a, a constituent who was blocked by her representative. Uh, my, my, my question is, is uh, the current Supreme Court case law adequate to deal with the constitutional status of Facebook and Twitter as government officials block followers and users on those platforms, or we do, do we need a new paradigm? Well, I, one of the reasons that we brought the suit relating to the president's Twitter account was in part to highlight that uh, we are entering uh, uh, a new era of political engagement. Political engagement now largely takes place online uh, in a way that it didn't in the past. And uh, the rules that government agencies uh, or politicians who use those accounts in an official capacity, um, the rules that they set up to uh, moderate uh, uh, citizens' contributions to those pages or those Twitter accounts are deeply unsettled. Um, some politicians have very clear rules and some government agencies have very clear rules. Other ones have uh, very muddied ones that rely on uh, uh, difficult and, and difficult to understand and vague standards. Uh, and I think there's a lot of work for courts to do in figuring out how public forum doctrine applies in those contexts. Uh, you know, this, the standard rubric in the designated public forum or limited public forum context uh, is that the government can have reasonable time, place, and manner restrictions to maintain the forum. And if you're talking about a limited forum, they can further have uh, restrictions based on, uh, you know, subject matter and, uh, and maybe even who can be there, uh, so long as they're not applied in a viewpoint discriminatory way. Uh, but how those rules apply, you know, what, what is a reasonable version of those rules to apply online in an online service where the constraints are very different than real world constraints are for physical public forums is an unsettled question. And that's in part why uh, we brought this suit because blocking is rampant. Uh, it is not just the president who blocks critics in his online presence. Uh, uh, political entities around the country and, and politicians around the country are doing so. Uh, and uh, the risk of that sort of blocking creating echo chambers, particularly when it comes to local government uh, online engagement, uh, is significant. And it's something that we're worried about. And, and uh, we brought this suit to, to highlight. So our hope, I think, is that over time, the courts will grapple with uh, what these rules may constitutionally look like. Uh, I certainly don't think that uh, applying the First Amendment to these online forums requires government agencies uh, uh, to cede control uh, of their online accounts to uh, abusive behavior uh, and uh, you know, essentially spam. Uh, I think there are a set of rules that can be applied to maintain the forum uh, in, in a reasonable way. But what they are, I think, is a hard question. And, and I think the first set of cases uh, will hopefully uh, cement the proposition that as politicians move online, the First Amendment follows. Uh, and then the second set of cases will uh, help clarify uh, what the rules are uh, that politicians can put in place um, in regulating those online forums. Uh, Eugene, how should the courts distinguish between different types of social media spaces? In Justice Alito's dissent in the Packingham case, he noted that there could be need for more nuance. Again, in Packingham, we haven't noted the facts. The court struck down a North Carolina statute which made it a felony for a registered sex offender to access a commercial social networking website. Uh, and the court said social media platforms like Facebook and Twitter are perhaps the most powerful mechanisms available to private citizens to make their, his or her voices heard. And that's when Justice Kennedy uh, compared the social media websites to modern public squares. So as the court moves forward, how do you think the justices should distinguish between the types of social media spaces? Oh, well, uh, thanks for bringing up Packingham again. I know I owed you uh, a, a comment on that. That was an excellent summary. Uh, and I think it highlights an, one important thing we shouldn't lose track of. Packingham involved a law that essentially said 
if you are a convicted sex offender, even after you have served your time, even after you are no longer in jail, no longer on probation, you cannot use any uh, um, social media uh, network, uh, uh, which children are allowed to, to set up profiles on, which basically means no Facebook, no Twitter and such. That is a very serious burden on people's ability to communicate and their ability to, uh, um, uh, to uh, get information. Uh, it's noteworthy that right now we're debating something that while important, no doubt is important, it really is. It, it just shows the, the health, how healthy free speech protection is, that, that this is what we're talking about. It's whether somebody could be excluded uh, from a, um, a Twitter feed run by a particular government official or maybe government entity. Even if they are, they're still completely free uh, to, uh, uh, to do things, uh, um, uh, to, to post their own uh, web pages. They're completely free to read and comment on other Twitter feeds. They could probably even get back on, although it is a hassle, they can get back on this Twitter feed simply by, uh, uh, by uh, creating a, a new Twitter handle. Um, so uh, so it just it just shows uh, it's just important to keep this in perspective. Again, I think it's an important issue and has all sorts of indirect consequences, but it's important to see how different this is from Packingham. Now, as to what the rules ought to be for different social media spaces, I think it depends on the rule and, uh, as well as as on the space. So I think you're quite you're quite right uh, uh, that uh, the um, that uh, you could have rules even if this is a limited public forum that are aimed at, for example, blocking vulgarities, or probably uh, making sure that uh, uh, comments on a particular subject are on topic. Uh, and to make sure that there's there's no, nobody just spamming something with hundreds of copies of the same comment. It's kind of similar to what happens when you've got open comment period in city council meetings. That's generally a limited public forum, uh, and the government can't exclude things based on viewpoint, but it can uh, impose uh, viewpoint neutral, even if content-based restrictions. Uh, so uh, when in this kind of situation, not like in Packingham, where the government was enacting a general criminal law, but, but where it's dealing with what's at most, what, what might be seen as the government's own property in the Knight Institute's view, uh, the government has a considerable amount of authority, although not the authority to discriminate based on viewpoint. Superb. Um, uh, Alex, uh, what standard do you think the courts should adopt when distinguishing between the different types of hats that public officials use? In other words, how do we know when the politician is publishing on uh, his or her handle as a candidate versus a public official? Mm -hmm. Ultimately, I think it's a functional inquiry. Uh, I think it'll turn on the facts in, in each circumstance. And there is a, a way in which that's uh, uh, an unsatisfying response to me anyway, but I, but I think that's the reality, particularly for services that don't make it easy for you as the user to uh, distinguish yourself uh, uh, in the way that you are using the service. Uh, you know, Twitter, for example, could make this very easy uh, for everyone by uh, allowing uh, people to post in two different capacities. But that's, but that's not the way that Twitter works. Uh, it's as though uh, uh, politicians had only available to them uh, town hall in making both their official statements and their campaign statements, and the citizenry was present throughout, and uh, uh, you had to pick one rule to apply to both sets of circumstances. Um, uh, but we're forced into that box by the, by, the way that, by the way that Twitter works. And so I think it's ultimately uh, a functional inquiry. And I think, you know, I'm curious to hear um, Professor Volokh's reaction to this. My, my sense is that part of what drives the concern uh, that applying public forum doctrine in this context might be problematic is a concern that uh, doing it when the politician is speaking in a personal capacity might actually undermine the politician's First Amendment rights uh, to, when speaking in a personal capacity, associate uh, whatever, you know, whoever, whomever they want, speak to whomever they want, not speak to others uh, to whom they don't want to speak. Um, I, I suspect that's part of the concern underlying um, uh, Professor Volokh's uh, hesitations and, and of others as well. And on that, you know, I think it's interesting to note that there are a number of circumstances uh, where we apply a functional test in the law to uh, the speech of government actors in deciding whether it is 
on the whole, more official or more personal. So a couple of examples. One is in the context of the Freedom of Information Act. Uh, if you are a government official and you have official records, agency records, and a, somebody, uh, a member of the public submits a FOIA request to your agency, you're obligated to turn over records. Uh, it often is the case, though, that public officials will use their personal email accounts to conduct official business. Um, you can, you know, I'm sure everyone remembers uh, Secretary of State Clinton's use of her personal email server to uh, conduct what courts determined ultimately were official business. Uh, and in deciding whether those records are subject to FOIA because they are effectively government records and as opposed to personal records, it's a functional inquiry under FOIA. Now, that's not a First Amendment test, but it certainly has uh, implications for the First Amendment rights of uh, the government official. Uh, it, you know, if, they're, if those emails uh, are truly personal, then it would be incredibly invasive for them to be subject uh, to a right of access, a statutory right of access by the public. Uh, and uh, if my personal email were subject to FOIA, I would think that'd be a, a, you know, a, a violation of, of, uh, of my rights. Um, but we engage in that functional inquiry. And, and another example is in the context of uh, government employee speech. Uh, uh, so if you are a, a government employee and you're fired for making statements off the job uh, uh, and you argue that your First Amendment rights are being violated because you are being punished for your speech, uh, courts engage in a balancing in deciding whether uh, your First Amendment right overcomes the government's right as an employer to decide uh, who to keep around as an employee. Uh, and uh, very relevant to that balance is whether the speech touched closely upon your duties as a government employee. The more it looked official and the more it related to your official duties, the more likely your First Amendment right to say it uh, uh, is going to be overcome by the government's uh, right as an employer to decide who works for it. Uh, so there are other circumstances where we engage in this balance, even though there might be First Amendment rights on both sides of the equation. Uh, and we haven't in the law, we haven't in the law at least shied away from engaging in that functional inquiry. And I think we should, uh, you know, I, I think it's a, a, a way of, of understanding how public forum doctrine might apply to uh, social media accounts of uh, public officials who, who sometimes wear two hats. Thanks very much for that. Eugene, the same question to you. What standard would you have courts adopt for disti distinguishing between uh, the different types of hats public officials use? And I'll just give you this hypothetical. Um, the National Constitution Center, as listeners must know, is a private nonprofit. We get basically no government money, uh, which is why we rely on your support. But imagine it were a public institution. It was created by Congress. And imagine I set up a Facebook page encouraging people to comment on the Constitution and then just deleted all the comments that said that I'm running a boring podcast or doing a bad job as head of the NCC. Would that be a public forum? And would I be allowed to do that? Or would I have speech rights of my own that would allow me to uh, punish my critics? So that's a great question. Uh, and I think it highlights one important point that I think we can all agree on, which is that if something is is set up as the NCC's account or the city council's account, so a government entity's account, then that is pretty clearly government speech. The government entity doesn't have any existence other than the government. Uh, but, Jeff, uh, you're a scholar as well as the director of the NCC, and your scholarship is not uh, uh, unrelated to, 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 your, to your role. In fact, probably that's one reason that you were chosen for the role and one reason you were, you were interested in it is because your scholarship is related to that and your journalism before that as well. So if you had an account where you talked about things that you were doing and what you would like to do with the NCC, and especially because you were trying to promote your maybe candidacy for future re, um, uh, uh, reappointment or <laughs> uh, if, if you would even want such a thing, sure. oh, or even beyond that, you were trying to kind of promote your ideas and your agenda, that would be a closer question. And exactly how to resolve it, I'm not sure I have a good answer. But let me point out why I think it's difficult and somewhat more different, difficult than Alex suggests. So Alex pointed out that when government is acting as employer, 
say, firing an employee or disciplining an employee based on the employee's speech makes a big difference whether this is speech that is seen as the the employee's speech on behalf of the government, in which case the government has virtually unlimited authority, versus his speech in his capacity as citizen. But interestingly, the topic turns out, at least as I read the cases, not to be that significant. Because a lot of the cases, including, you know, the uh, when the, gov- the government of citizen test involves the Pickering case, and Pickering himself was writing about something that he, uh, that he, that was about his job and that he knew be- because of his job. And one of the things that the court has stressed in the past uh, when it comes to uh, the value of government employee speech is precisely that government employee speech is valuable because the speakers, say when they write a letter to the editor or put up a Twitter feed or a Facebook page, the speakers are talking about something they know. They're talking about things that they've learned on their own job. Uh, so that's a situation where uh, the fact that somebody is talking about something that has to do with uh, uh, with uh, 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 the topic. Pickering was a teacher, and he was writing about uh, about a proposed uh, uh, um, uh, about uh, in a way that was critical of the way in which the Board of Education had handled past uh, uh, revenue raising proposals, which was pretty closely related to this topic. And if he had been writing about uh, advances in educational uh, educational understanding and why the school district wasn't adequately using them, that too would have been fully protected. Uh, So uh, the mere fact that a politician is talking about stuff that has to do with his political duties and his political agenda, that it seems to me can't count for much. If if I can just, you know, yeah. Uh, yes, please respond. And then um, I'm going to ask for your uh, closing statement. Uh, go ahead. Sure. Oh, I, I wanted to jump in in part. I, I think I think Professor Valk and I agree on much in terms of the, the legal framework. And I, and I want to take the opportunity to, to agree in large part on what he just said as well, which is uh, it is absolutely true that uh, uh, isolated as a single factor, uh, a politician using a personally created account discussing policy um, uh, probably isn't enough to show that an account is an official one for all the reasons I think that Professor uh, Volok just stated. Uh, but many politicians use their accounts in, other, in, in more uh, engaged ways with their constituencies. Uh, and that seems to be the case pretty clearly for President Trump's account. He's not just discussing policy, he is very frequently announcing policy. Uh, So for example, the first and as far as we can tell only time that the White House announced that uh, Chris Wray was the nominee for the FBI directorship was on Twitter, not through a, a White House press statement other than one issued from the president's own account. Uh, and uh, the, the first and as far as we can tell, only time that the president uh, responded to requests for possible tape recordings he had of Director Comey's meetings with the president was, again, through his Twitter account. Uh, and when the House Intelligence Committee later asked the president to disclose any tapes if he had them, uh, his aides responded that he had already addressed that question through a statement on his Twitter account. Uh, and so I, I agree that there are going to be hard cases, uh, as is always the case with functional inquiries, uh, distinguishing between uh, personal use of social media accounts and official use of social media accounts. I don't actually think I don't think the president's account is one of them. Uh, uh, and uh, for the others, I think we should be encouraged by the straightforward analysis, what I, what, I, what I at least thought was a fairly straightforward analysis that took place in the Davison case, the one out of Loudoun County, Virginia, uh, where the court very level-headedly looked at the various ways in which uh, that councilwoman had used her account and applied a functional inquiry and, and came to a conclusion. I think, uh, you know, there may be a number of those cases, but I don't think they'll be, um, I, I don't think they'll cause so much consternation in the end, particularly given that at the end of the day, Politicians themselves are in control of how they use their account. Uh, And if a court says they've crossed the line from personal to official and they want to stay on the personal side, it's entirely within their capacity 
to keep it as a personal one by using it in a way that is uh, personal under the test rather than rather than official. That's great. Well, we'll go to closing statements in a second, but in the spirit of Alexander Michael John, who said uh, of the First Amendment, he compared it to a town hall, and he said it uh, doesn't mean that every citizen shall speak, but that everything worth saying shall be said. Uh, Eugene, final thoughts on the uh, functional test and, and the way that we tell distinguish between public and, and private uh, accounts. You know, I'm not against functional tests as such, because functional tests can mean so many things. It's all a matter of what you think are the relevant functions. I am also not terribly impressed by the argument that, well, the president is using this to announce uh, announce certain policies. Again, you can imagine a president uh, um, uh, giving a speech at a uh, uh, re-election campaign rally, which I get back to because I do think this is a classic example of where the president isn't speaking as a uh, um, uh, as a government official. And he says, and I just want you, my supporters, to be the first to know that I am going to do X. I, I don't think that that makes it, that, that rally, uh, that, that campaign rally into government speech. Uh, it has, it's a politician's speech where he talks about what he's doing for the government. I think that the Knight Institute's strongest argument is if the facts show that he is actually using staffers, uh, to, to run the account, which I've heard uh, statements that, that so suggest. That does make it look like it's more an organizational thing rather than his own private thing, or for that matter, uh, something that for, for a, a re-election campaign rally would have to do more with, uh, uh, or excuse me, would be done more by party officials or, or campaign committee officials who deliberately cannot be government uh, employees. Um, so, so I think that the United Institute may, may ultimately have the better of the argument. They may ultimately prevail. Uh, but uh, I think that the, the government officials can often speak about politics and announce things about what they're going to be doing politically um, without that becoming government speech, without them taking off their hat as the politician and, and putting on necessarily the hat of the official. Uh, and I suppose that's one of the things that the courts are going to be deciding. Wonderful. Well, now that everything worthwhile has been said, and Michael John will be proud, we'll have very brief closing statements. And the question is the obvious one. In just a few sentences, Alex, can you tell our listeners why you believe that President Trump's decision to block certain citizens from his Twitter feed violates the First Amendment? For the straightforward reason uh, that he uses the account uh, as an extension of his presidency, uh, rather than in a, a personal capacity. Uh, he considers his use of the account to be related to his duty as president. Uh, his aides have frequently described his uh, tweets as official statements of, of the government, and he has used it in a way that suggests it's official. Uh, but I think it's also important to uh, keep sight of the broader principle uh, no matter what the outcome of our case, uh, which is that uh, whether we like it or not, social media is the new terrain on which uh, political engagement is taking place. Uh, there are now, uh, I imagine, fewer town hall meetings than there used to be and, and more uh, comment spaces online. Uh, and it's important to think through uh, the relevance that the First Amendment will have in those online forums if we are to uh, uh, to stick with the analogy, maintain uh, a Michelangian space for, for exchange. Uh, and and I'm, I hope we do, because I think uh, 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 one trend that I find troubling is uh, the continued division of, of our country into, uh, into echo chambers, often facilitated by, by online forums, um, and a reduction in uh, the ability of people to truly engage with those with whom they disagree. And I think uh, preserving these online spaces created by government for exchange uh, would be important both for uh, uh, local political engagement, but also in terms of the signal it would send about uh, our country's ability uh, to continue to have thoughtful discourse across party lines. Thanks very much for that. Eugene, last word to you. Why do you think that the president's decision to block certain users from his Twitter feed may not violate the First Amendment? Yeah, I, again, 
all of that that uh, the, the president has been, as people have pointed out, has been doing is consistent with his acting as a uh, as the president, and it's consistent with his acting as the politician, because the two roles over, uh, overlap. So one question that arises is to what extent do we treat that as the decisions of a politician who gets to control his feet because it is his speech and he should control who can respond to it and how in this particular forum and to what extent we view that as actions of the government. It's an interesting question and I'd be fine with either way the courts resolve it and I think it's a close call. Maybe the United States has the better of the argument. I will say, however, uh, and this is probably a little bit more so of Twitter than Facebook, but um, uh, if we're looking for kind of constructive engagement that breaks apart our echo chambers, even fully open Twitter messages aren't going to do the job. You're not going to have a lot of really good debate in 140 characters or less. Uh, so just to keep things in perspective, again, it's an important case. It raises interesting, uh, interesting uh, questions uh, uh, about the structure of constitutional law. Uh, but uh, but ultimately, we're, the republic will not suffer greatly, nor will it be benefited greatly from either possible decision in this case. Thank you so much, Eugene Volokh and Alex Avdo, for a nuanced, illuminating, and really fresh discussion on a fascinating question on the boundaries of free speech and technology. Um, I also want to welcome uh, Ugana Etze, who is our new uh, fellow in constitutional studies and is uh, supervising the podcast and has done a wonderful job with this one. Eugene, Alex, thank you so much for joining. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. Today's show was engineered by Jason Gregory and produced by Ugana Etze and Scott Bomboy. Research was provided by Ugana Etze and Lana Ulrich. Continue today's conversation on Facebook and Twitter using at ConstitutionCTR. Sign up to receive Constitution Weekly, our email roundup of constitutional news and debate at bit.ly forward slash Constitution Weekly. Please subscribe to We the People and our companion podcast live at America's Town Hall on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And please post a review of We the People on iTunes and all of those other great platforms. And let's hope you're not blocked by any government official. We the People is a member of Slate's Panoply Network. Check out the full roster of podcasts at panoply.fm. And finally, as we talked about on this show, despite our congressional charter, the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We receive little government support, and we rely on the generosity, passion, engagement, and enthusiasm of people around the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. That means you. So I want you to go to the website and become a member to support our work, including this podcast. Visit constitutioncenter.org to learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.